Hi, everybody. It's Jerry here on Dears Americans. And thank you so much for listening and joining us. Uh, we are it's still in the first week of May. And um, I am joining you today, at least joining, uh, recording this intro from Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, we're at Dartmouth College for a speaking engagement. We've been on the road in Chicago, Indiana, Boston, and now. And uh, tomorrow we'll be going to uh, New York City for a series of events. And so if you're listening to this on Friday morning and you're available Friday evening, uh, shoot us a note and uh, hopefully you can make us or meet us at this event that we're doing at The Wing and with our friends who are uh, Asian American founders. Today, this episode is really special. Um, it is with Mykon Shelton, who is a Senior Vice President of Equity and Inclusion at Warner Media, And she shares a story of how she used her legal background, her experiences uh, growing up in this country to really advocate for inclusion, equity, uh, diversity, and all the things that uh, I believe that we all care about. And so uh, bring out a notepad. I think there's a lot to learn from her story and from her uh, the things that she shares with us. And so uh, thank you to the Warner Media team for making this interview possible and for all of our friends at Allied Global as well. Hope you are having a wonderful May, uh, whether it is for APAM, uh, for Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, and today is May, f uh, yesterday would have been May 5th. And so to my kids and to all the kids uh, from Korea and elsewhere who celebrate Children's Day on May 5th, uh, happy Orinina to my two little kids. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you're doing well. And without further ado, here is my interview with Mykon Shelton. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Hope you are staying safe and healthy as we continue to navigate a lot of stuff in our lives. Um, I'm so excited uh, to share this conversation today. Uh, I think one of the things that I wish I had growing up and obviously part of doing this podcast is my way of solving that is seeing more of us and normalizing seeing people who look like you, whether it is race, gender, different abilities, different genders, uh, so that our kids uh, don't have to get so excited every time they see somebody who looks like them for the first time. And so uh, one of the ways that we can do that is to advocate people who have great influence and what we see and what we consume from a content perspective to be able to normalize these things. Uh, I get super excited every time I see a new book, TV show, movie, anything with my kids who look like my kids. Uh, my goal is that they don't get excited as I do because they're going to say, Dad, what the hell is the big deal? This is just normal. And so we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about how a lawyer decided to uh, take her talents and gifts and passions into uh, advocating for equity. And so really excited to share this conversation uh, with Mikan Shelton, who is the Senior Vice President of Equity and Inclusion of Workforce and Production at Warner Media. Uh, Mikan, welcome to the Ears Americans. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I am so excited. Um, and, you know, before we get started, there's been a lot of people who've made this happen behind the scenes. And so to everybody at Warner and to Ally, thank you for making this a reality. Um, it is so cool to speak to you because I think, you know, we we don't quite understand and hopefully we'll learn a little bit of how things get advocated for, you know, at the levels that you operate in or sort of behind the scenes of how does representation happen on screen and what is how is that thought of you know not just from a race perspective which obviously is very important uh in the context of our asian american identity and community uh, but just across the board and so we'd love to learn a little bit more about you um how you got started where you went where you want to go in life and the impact that you want to leave um, but let's start a little bit about learning what you're doing today um, tell us about your role at warner media and why it is so important that you do this work 
Sure. So my role at Warner Media is to enable equity and inclusion throughout the workforce. We have a workforce of about 30,000 people around the world. Uh, we have hundreds of productions at any given time that employ um, hundreds of thousands of people, cast, crew, and creators. And how do we make sure that the environments are inclusive so that people can do their best work? How do we make sure that the playing field is level so that everybody who enters into our our company, our workforce environments, know they have a fair shot at uh, advancing and at being uh, valued and appreciated for the contributions they make. So it is uh, really my um, great, great honor to do this work because I feel like Warner Media has such an outsized impact on culture and on, you know, society that if we can get equity and inclusion enabled and embedded throughout our workforce, we will have uh, quite the ability to have a force multiplier to make a, a more just and equitable world for everyone. You know, I, I find, and I you know we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this because uh, at the root of it, I too am a uh, numbers and data nerd. And, you know, there's something that you put in the guest intake form it says, uh, I place a premium on analytics, counseling, and training to achieve business results. I work to uncover root causes as a means to devise data-driven solutions that produce institutional change. And I think when we think about diversity um, across the board for visible diversity, we often think about, well, who we needs to be seen. And so bring in somebody who looks like that, or maybe we haven't had somebody who represents one community or another, and sort of play this checkbox just to be like, okay, is everybody happy? But I think you take a different approach to it, mm-hmm. which is to say, hey, one, there is science behind this. Mm-hmm. And two, there's business purpose behind this. And I think something that we all know, and sometimes it's really hard to uh, logically articulate, is that inclusion is actually profitable. Reaching, sure. reaching an audience that hasn't been served in the short and long run is profitable for anything, any companies. Um, and so I think that's really, really awesome because you know I often sort of have this note that when we know that diversity, inclusion, equity, and all these programs and elevating marginalized people is profitable, and yet so many companies don't do it. Yeah. Do you not like money? Yeah. At exactly. the end of the day, because you are a very for-profit corporation, and if you are not doing the things that has been proven to bring you money, whether it is the elevation of women in the workforce, or you know people who've been marginalized, or having programs to build pipelines, we don't hear that, and so. Really, really excited to learn more about what you're doing. Uh, but let's roll the time clock back a little bit more. Uh, tell us about the Mikan story, how you and your family uh, made their way to America. Um, how did you come under what circumstances? And uh, tell us about the early ages of your life. Okay. I am uh, chomping at the bit to talk about all the things <laughs> that you just mentioned. But okay, we, we can start with me. Um, I uh, came to America in uh, 1975. Uh, just before the fall of Saigon. That's kind of where my story begins and my memories begin. Um, I'm the youngest of four kids, and uh, my parents and my siblings and I were very uh, fortunate to be one of the families who left uh, right at the fall of Saigon. We've all seen those pictures of the helicopters uh, leaving the, the city as it fell, and that was my experience. And 
it has been uh, something that I've reflected on a lot in this past, you know, couple of years as we've seen these refugee crises. And, uh, you know, I've had many more discussions with my family in the last couple of years than I have in, you know, all of our lives. Um, you know, these were not stories that we told uh, or that my parents and family told to me as I was growing up. It was very much the immigrant story of heads down and pushing forward and just really, you know, moving ourselves into a place of, you know, safety and security. And um, it has been uh, a real, you know, um, a real blessing to me that in this past uh, few years, you know, my family has opened up and started telling and talking about these stories. Um, but in 1975, as we came to America, um, uh, they said, we kind of had that typical or what you think of as the typical, you know, immigrant refugee story. My parents, you know, went off and um, worked two, three jobs. You know, we were Vietnamese, but my mom, you know, was an accountant by day, worked at a Chinese restaurant by night, you know, it was like close, close enough in that Asian vicinity in, uh, in the seventies so that, uh, she did that, you know, and I was raised by my oldest brother, um, who was about, you know, 11 at the time. And he cooked all our meals. He made us, you know, his specialty was ketchup, hot dog, rice, that we ate like just you know, every day, and um, he really took care of us. And he, um, you know, made sure I went to school. And my other brother and sister, you know, we did all of our you know homework, and and he bought us school supplies with the money that he earned. Um, you know, doing little errands and tasks uh, if in the neighborhood. So, you know, it was really everything I learned about being a leader came from my brother. Um, and my mom and dad never really acknowledged, you know, his contributions to the family and never really thanked him because it was all very expected. Like that was his responsibility as an older brother. And so, you know, one of the things that I've learned and really uh, reflected on in these past years is to make sure that um, that I do thank and acknowledge people who have made a contribution to my life, to, you know, the greater work and, and the purpose-driven work that we do at WarnerMedia. I lead a great team. And I do find that, uh, you know, the, the maybe cultural aspects of my family of, you know, just heads down and, and uh, not acknowledging the work because it's expected uh, might creep up. And so I, I do stop and I do, I do try very hard to make sure we acknowledge all the people who are doing all the great work to advance equity and inclusion throughout our company. And, you know, um, people who are stepping up right now and speaking out and, and um, uh, showing up as, you know, allies, advocates, um, uh, part of my work, I think, is to acknowledge them, raise the visibility of the people doing the work. And even though it's expected and everybody should be doing it, it is uh, worthwhile to bring to bring attention to the people who are doing the work. There's so much in that you shared. I think we can uh, dig in for hours on end. I, you know, I think our parents' generation collectively, or the early immigrant generation, um, operated in a survivalist mindset. 
um, obviously, physical survival in many people's cases. Um, and so the things that we get to talk about today, whether it is mental health or, you know, things that are many levels or even one level above actual survivorship, wasn't a part of their world, right? And so they had this both intergenerational but intercontinental shift in expectations of this new world. And so I, I think there's so much conflict there that I think uh, coupled with the traumas that they experienced at home, um, you know, I'm Korean by ethnicity. And so even though my parents didn't flee pending war, my grandparents were born into occupied Japan or occupied Korea by Japan. And so thinking about one generation even prior to my parents and thinking the conversations that were had, it was it wasn't even survival, it was worse than survival. It was liberated liberation-based survival. And so I think in 2022, as you and I sit here, have the audacity to talk about things that weren't even in their vocabulary to say, what what privilege do you guys live in that you can talk about uh, things like representation and equity and helping other people? We are so busy just trying to fend for ourselves. Um, also led to those notions of expectation of, of course we do it, right? Of course you do things to do your, help your family, of course. And so I, I think it is really interesting to hear your story. And uh, most most important of that is how those lessons and how those perspectives help you do the work that you do today. You know, I, I keep thinking about, um, there's a word that often comes up, especially this time of year, whether it is, you know, uh, February for Black History Month and March for Women's History Month or, you know, our month. And, you know, everybody west of California gets one month. So it's all <laughs> of us in May. Uh -huh. um, I hope that changes soon. However, and it's this word despite, right? And so I think when we talk about whether it is your story or uh, fellow Vietnamese refugees or other people who've had a tougher time uh, getting into objective levels of success in the traditional world, as you have demonstrated, we often hear these things like, you know, despite her background or despite the challenges, despite X, Y, Z, through it, she made it. And I actually think that we need to replace the word despite with because, mm -hmm. because I genuinely believe it is in those struggles and in those things that give us more opportunities to view the world in a different lens, to develop skills like empathy and humanity so that you can see the world differently right and so it's so I, I true think, right and i think it's because you experienced life in the exact way that you did you want to make it and again we're never going to you know talk down or to diminish or to be unappreciative of what our parents did for us because because of their sacrifice we're here but i find it so refreshing that it is you who has those experiences that now allow you to lead such a impactful and large organization and perhaps managing people or having your ideas being impacted by people who haven't had your similar experiences yeah and to say i don't understand why that's important right yeah. and so what what i mean do you get to talk to your brother now i mean talking to parents about this stuff obviously is a is a whole different level but um, do you get to talk to your brother about sort of the the gratitude that you two share and the bond that you two share based on how you were raised? Well, no, let's not get bananas. I mean, I'm still, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know to, to have uh, been raised as a, we don't talk about it for all those decades. I can't turn on a dime. We're starting to unpack it. But, uh, you know, we joke in my family, um, you know, because I have I have two daughters 
And I joke that they have it too easy and they don't have that character building experience that we had. Like they, when it rains, uh, I'm not putting grocery bags on their shoes and sending them off to school in the like embarrassing ways, right? So how are they going to actually have any grit and, and uh, character when they, they have life too easy? So uh, of course they fight me on that all the time. Um, and uh, and we, we really try to think about, you know, how, how did those experiences growing up really help shape who we are and how do we not lose, you know, kind of our history and our family values as, you know, uh, my daughters grow up in a totally different environment, right? Totally different neighborhoods, totally different, you know, uh, um, network and within their schools and totally different, you know, portrayals that they see in media, all good, all good and in the right direction. But I think to your point, part of, I think what, um, what drives me is, you know, um, kind of the struggle and uh, the, the lessons I learned as a kid. And we, you know, it was never fun growing up in a household where no matter how bad your day was, you know, uh, we, my parents would be like, well, did you lose, did you lose your country? Like, okay. So, I mean, you were never going to be able to have a bad day if the bar was losing your country. Right. right? So, but so, you know, we could joke about that now, but it is really something that you kept things in perspective and the way you grew up with, you know, uh, having been through that experience really gives you a perspective and, and the, um, you know, that, that wild optimism and the, the belief that you can, you can make it and you can have such an impact because my gosh, look at how far we've come just from 1975 to now, what might be possible if we continue to, to go and we continue to apply ourselves and we continue to open doors and expand our thinking about people and possibility. Again, I think we can talk for hours on even just how do we parent differently, right? Mm -hmm. um, I have two kids myself. They're five and three. And again, it's like, well, um, you know, my life wasn't so bad growing up, but you're not going to experience some of the things that I did, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, I am involved in your school life already. My parents were not, mm -hmm. you know, um, the idea that, you know, I'll accompany you to your even college visit trips, wherever they may happen you know, things that Asian parents didn't even know how to do or even mm -hmm. think that was possible. Um, you know, I went to my college orientation. I said, why are the white kids here with their parents? Like, <laughs> why? This is this is your experience. Why are your parents here? Yeah. Right? Uh -huh. um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's not bad or good, but I think it's just different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's this delicate balance and perhaps a unfigureoutable balance between um, making sure that we build on the sacrifices and therefore assume and exercise our privilege in the right way, mm -hmm. but also then to be able to make sure that our kids don't become the very entitled privilege uh, people who often made our lives miserable because <laughs> they didn't have the same perspective, right? And the very oh, definition man. of what Asian American looks like in our kids' generation is forever changed and it will continue to get even uh, more different, right? And, and more difficult to identify. And so how do we even build, you know, uh, strong kids and confident kids when, you know, we often got 
angry at our parents for not understanding their world. And even already, I don't understand their world, mm. right? Mm-hmm. How do you have, you know, my, my partner and my wife is Korean as well. So we have Korean children, but they, they have friends who are already mixed race Korean. So like, hey, you're Korean, I'm Korean, but you, you're, you know, we're not the same. Mm-hmm. How do we translate that in language and culture when it is not necessary for survival? Um, mm-hmm. You know, all these questions that I think even in our personal lives, you struggle with, um, you have the the pleasure, or I guess you volunteered for it. Uh, you think about this all day, both mm-hmm. at work and at home. Um, and so help us understand how you got to where you are. You went to law school after undergrad. I um, you you practiced law um, at an amazing firm that I have had friends also work at. Oh, really? Um, okay. And, yeah. Uh, I've heard nothing but great things. Um, and then you went soon thereafter into, uh, you know, I guess, formerly known as Fox. I don't know how mm-hmm. all the, the mergers happened, but you went into entertainment law relatively quickly. Um, did you see yourself using law and legal knowledge to do what you're doing today? Or perhaps, you know, when you started in entertainment uh, almost 20 years ago, or a little bit more than 20 years ago, was it just, hey, it's undergrad, it's law school, it's law firm, it's exit, and it's me doing law as a way of, uh, putting myself on a different trajectory professionally and financially than what your parents perhaps had the opportunity to do. How, how did you view your career then, obviously with the hindsight that we have today? Yeah, probably all of the above, probably a little <laughs> bit all of, of all of it. But I think, I think the, you know, the main driver of my, you know, career was that I really, I like advocating for, people. I like advocating for issues that I believe in. I like learning about people. I like to problem solve. And I went into the law thinking I was going to be a civil rights attorney. And I went to Berkeley and had a you know really great time uh, learning about the different areas that I could you know make an impact. Um, and I decided to go try my hand at um, uh, litigation at Quinn Emanuel. And uh, it was a really great experience. For a, you know, young lawyer, you really want to have autonomy and agency so that you can, you know, run your own cases. And I went in-house at Fox because, you know, it is a really innovative company um, for a very long time. And it was building out an in-house legal practice. I thought, great, I'll go there and uh, hone my litigation skills because it was a place you can go in-house and you could you could uh, do great legal work without having to bill time, which for any lawyers who are listening, the idea of not billing time is like, you know, the, the holy grail. That's what you're trying to do. <laughs> back back uh, to uh, getting yourself out of the law firm, uh, six-minute increments of how you run your life. So uh, I went in-house and thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice my litigation skills here and really fell in love with uh, employment law work because I learned really quickly how how significant um, relationships and how significant um, you know matters of identity showed up in someone's life in their work environment more so than probably in their social networks or even in their family because many people spend more time with their work colleagues and at work than it, with anybody else and so how folks would navigate identity and interpersonal conflict 
uh, at work really fascinated me. So I really went into this area of employment law. I, you know, advise executives on, you know, how to work across difference. Um, and uh, ultimately, as I, you know, rose through the ranks at Fox, I did more, you know, advice and counsel work, more policy related work. And then fast forward to around 2015, you might remember uh, issues of um, hashtag Oscar so white and the lack of uh, women as feature film directors became a very, very big public issue. And so, you know, my role was to go figure out what our position was as a, as a company. But for a variety of reasons, you know, uh, we could have great defenses, the First Amendment or lots of reasons that I think from a litigation standpoint, you know, the studios could navigate those types of um, issues. But I didn't get into the work to like work around problems, right? I got mm -hmm. into the work to try to solve problems. And so seeing the lack of women in feature film directing, seeing the lack of racial representation on screen and in, uh, you know, the uh, being given awards, those were problems that I thought we needed to solve. And so we started asking the question, like legal issues aside, what are the problem, problems here? What are the root causes? And so back to what we were saying earlier about using data, right? This is when we really started looking at data. Um, you know, big data was becoming such a big thing in every other realm, but really had not made its way into equity inclusion work the way I saw it become a big issue in, you know, the, those years. And I realized, you know, the people who are making decisions, they're making decisions and one-off day-to-day decisions that were really consequential, but really hard to see patterns if you are right in it, right? So you could be making a decision on which director to, to hire for one episode of TV, and then you're making a decision on another director for the next episode. And every single decision is probably really easily justifiable, right? You could have a reason, you could explain why you hired this person, without any sense of the patterns that might be developing. But when you step back and you looked across Hollywood and you looked at the reports that were coming out from USC and UCLA and SDSU, you saw that this pattern emerged, that there were definitely people who were getting more access and more resources to tell stories, more access and more opportunities to tell stories and to do great work in Hollywood than other people. And this was a question to me that we needed to dig into and we needed to answer. And so that's what led me from my role as a lawyer to my role in equity and inclusion, because that's when we started um, an equity and inclusion department and function within 20th Century Fox um, film and television and sports. I, I find that really interesting because I think oftentimes just to go back on sort of your you know, you could explain one thing here or there. And mm -hmm. I think especially, you know, maybe we see entertainment as a very subjective area of life where, you know, uh, you might think that something's funny and I may not, or we might enjoy, you know, films differently. But there still is this notion of experience and merit mm -hmm. in terms of those are the metrics that we use to hire somebody for something. But if we just use the argument that who had if we're saying like we're only going to hire somebody who has had these exactly. accolades or experiences and we roll the tape back only 10 years, 20 years to say, well, 
we weren't in the room, right? And so then that further perpetuates this blockage of gatekeeping of, well, because you didn't have this on your resume, you don't get to do it. Exactly. And therefore, I'm not going to have the same chance in 10 years when they're going to use the same metric to exclude me. And, and exactly. so how do you you see that or how does the, you know, the industry see that when merit is not, I guess, you know, merit is not fair. It is mm-hmm. not a, it's a know, fallacy. Opp- perhaps correct. Mm-hmm. And because the opportunities were not equal, um, but in a hyper competitive world with people lobbying for or you know jockeying for the same talent um we know from our own even consumption that we'll give a movie with a known character a try even if we know nothing about it and so there's some inherent value to hiring people that are more familiar um you know as we sit here in you know the beginning of april 2022 we are continuing to see different things in media and entertainment we're recording on the week after the grammys and uh, after the Oscars, it is you know post award season, and, and so we're seeing still how it plays itself out. And forced diversity doesn't work, you know. Uh, tokenizing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you you know uh, how do you see that in terms of the best way to use you being in your position is obviously fantastic and really critically important. Um, but for somebody who's trying to break into it. Uh, into the industry, either as front of the camera or behind the camera. Um, Often the things that I hear from my friends is we don't even get the chance Mm -hmm. because they say we're not good enough. And again, it goes back into this cyclical thing uh, with with the organization who has uh, so much, uh, you know, influence and and control perhaps over who gets those shots. um, How do you maintain the balance between doing the projects that you know are going to be profitable Mm -hmm. and yet making opportunity for room or I guess, room for opportunity for new people to try things and perhaps to fail maybe the first or second time, but knowing that they need those at-bats to get better and to prove themselves. Yeah. So the good news, I'll start there and then work my way backwards. Uh, The good news is the stories and the um, films and the television shows that have diverse cast are more profitable than those that don't. So thankfully, those are not mutually exclusive. And they're actually, uh, I think, uh, if not causal, certainly highly correlated, right? So, and I actually think it's causal. So, um, so we, we start there. Uh, now, working backwards, our strategy at Warner Media is to think about our systems and our culture. And that's why we've named our, our work in our department, the equity plus inclusion department, because our strategy is right in our name, right? So when we talk about equity, we're talking about systems, right? How we hire, how we choose to pay people, how we promote people, right? Though there are systems that uh, create opportunities for people and then also perhaps shut out opportunities for people. And how do we make sure that our systems are equitable so that everybody who comes in is on a level playing field and they get to know that they're going to be treated fairly, right? And the decision-making is going to be as free from bias as possible. So uh, we think if we get the systems right and then we get the inclusion, right? The interpersonal behaviors, the culture, the environment with people in which people work, 
if it is an environment where you can come and you can do your best work and you're not feeling like you have experienced microaggressions all day, you feel marginalized, right? How are you possibly going to be do your best work? If we get that right, equity plus inclusion, because it takes both of those mm-hmm. things, we will yield diversity, sustainable, real, rich, dynamic diversity, not tokenized diversity, not come sit in the room, but sit in the corner, don't say anything diversity, right? But real, authentic diversity. So that's that's our approach. Um, we think about how we unpack the notion of a meritocracy, you know, who's qualified, who's best, you know, qualified for these roles. I mean, there are so many inherent biases packed into that notion that our work is to say, hey, let's pull that apart. Let's think about how we are describing the job criteria. Let's think about how we're making these decisions. Are the fixed notions of how many credits you have on IMDb, is that the best way to measure qualifications? We don't think so, right? Because as you said, there have been biased decision-making that led to uh, that led to the credits you have. So what, what are the ways we could be thinking about qualifications? What are the ways we could be thinking about criteria that really value the perspective that someone would bring, the, the different um, frameworks people would use to make decisions, solve problems, tell stories, right? Those are, to my mind, the really much more future oriented, the much more outcome success driven measures that we should be applying when we hire people and when we choose people rather than I think, and I'm going to say it, it's going to sound a little bit rude, but I think just looking at, you know, volumes of credits and things like that, that's a little bit of a lazy way to do it. And I'm, I, I'll even put myself in the, uh, so I don't, insult people without <laughs> put it, without being really honest about like how I did it wrongly. When I was hiring lawyers, when I was heading a legal department, I was hiring lawyers in-house and, you know, everybody wanted to go in-house. So anytime we posted a position, we'd get hundreds of resumes. And so I said to our recruiter, you know, I want top 10 law school, big firm law experience because I don't have time to train. I need big firm um, law trading. So you already see where this goes, but back then I was, you know, didn't quite know better. That gave me a certain candidate pool because it inherited the biases and the structural racism inherent in our academic system, especially in the top 10 schools. Right. And then big law firm. Okay. Well, there's a lot that goes into, uh, the biases of big law firm and who makes it there. So I already, right out of the gate, was taking two cuts and cutting out all sorts of people. And that was because I was being lazy. And that was because uh, we needed shortcuts through our recruiting process. Okay, this was a long, long, long time ago. And I really learned better really quickly. So, but now I say, like, you know, there are ways that we still do that. And we do it inadvertently. We do it because we're trying to move quickly in this environment where everybody wants to move fast. Everybody, you know, is exhausted from just the world. What are the shortcuts we could take? 
I mean, I'm all for shortcuts, but we really need to examine them to see what are the consequences of these shortcuts. What are the consequences of not examining our systems to make sure that they are fair and equitable? Because uh, that is just not going to be a scenario where businesses continue to succeed if they continue to take shortcuts that cut people out of the talent pipeline, ourselves included. I mean, I think we can, I mean, I've experienced that. Um, we all have and sort of, you know, um, I, I think the, the excuse or cover for it is, Hey, you know, um, we just want to duplicate and culture fit whatever has worked in the past. Well, we haven't tried other things. Right. And so, um, yeah, law firms are notorious for that. Uh, you know, when I went to business school, it's the same thing, right? Like, why do you only hire at these five schools? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Who says that those five schools produce the best? Or exactly. is it that the partners went to those five schools and their ego is driving the fact that they want a free trip back to the college town? Like, it's ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? I, I understand in in a world that is so, in a business world that is so demanding of time and efficiency that... Uh, I actually had a, a professor who was a, a long-term consulting partner uh, explain this. Um, and it has to do with the idea of like A and B errors. I forget which one is what. But you'd rather make the error that is – I'm going to butcher it up. But he was basically saying it is better for a business to make those errors that they can easily defend mm-hmm. rather than to fix the error that they're going to take a long chance on. Exactly. And so inherently their risk of, their, their excuse is risk aversion. Right. But it is disguising uh, whatever you want to call it. Right. Like nepotism at many, many levels or, you know, um, part of my career was focused in uh, in sales organizations and especially in this new world of tech sales. If you continue to pay referral bonuses to the same people who went to the same schools and went to the same everything, you're going to end up looking the same after a few cycles. And then you wonder, why don't we have diversity? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this continued push of, you know, we don't have time to discuss diversity. We're just so desperate to grow or to hit these metrics. And um, as even entertainment uh, at a very, very high, broad business level um, and the companies that you've involved with, even in the last 10 years, have gone through so many reorgs mm-hmm. and splits and takeovers and mergers and rebrands. And that's right. It's hard to have a long term strategy or even a long-term horizon when maybe you're just being a part of a packaging so that it can be spun off properly. And the people who are making those decisions maybe don't care about the same issues that you and I are talking about today because it helps, but it doesn't, right? And so I I think you have, um, I don't want to say impossible because you're doing it, but such a tremendous task. Uh, even if we look at um, Warner Media's you know, uh, inventory or brand list, I mean, you're you're taking anything from you know Cartoon Network to CNN uh, to HBO Max, and those are none of those seem overlapping with anybody else. And so, how do you lead organizations that are so disparate in their own subcultures that are that have reputations for having certain leans in the social discourse, or perhaps have varying audiences, um, but at the top they're all you know led by the same people. How do you use institutionalizing or systematizing policies or uh, the way that you lead to make sure that those things, you know, uh, flow down properly? Because at some point, it's hard to control every hiring room. It's hard to control everything that happens 
because it's it's impossible to do that. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, you've asked a very complex question. Okay. So <laughs> I think the, the, the one through line is that leadership matters so much. Leadership matters so much in this space because I'll start with the idea that you want you, and you need to have room to make decisions that are not the obvious and easy decision. To your point, right? You could always uh, take the safe route because you could defend it and say, no one's going to question you if you hire the Harvard MBA, right. Stanford undergrad, whatever, right? Someone might question like, oh, if this person didn't do as well right out of the gate and they went mm-hmm. to whatever, you know, state school, go UCLA, go Cal, my alma mater. Okay. <laughs> but, um, right, then if you are in an environment that you feel that you are just going to be scrutinized and second guess and you don't have the room to make these uh, decisions and, and more freedom to be much more future oriented, I think you are going to be super risk averse and you are going to just perpetuate the status quo. So I think leadership really matters. Leadership who understands that the world is just increasingly diversified. It is increasingly becoming a... Um, a global audience that needs to hear and that really is yearning to hear more interesting stories from more storytellers, right? And if you believe that, then the, you know, I'm putting in air quotes, the risks and, you know, maybe the, um, the, the longer term uh, decisions that you're going to make, there's going to be more room for it because you're going to know the reward lays on the other side of this, right? So I think leadership matters uh, just so much. And then I think in terms of how do you move through transitions, there have been so much uh, consolidation in media. I was at Fox and it was bought by Disney and now I'm at Warner Media and it's going to be, uh, we're going to close a deal that uh, makes this the Warner Brothers Discovery Company. How do you move through this? And I think you do need to understand short term and long term, right? Sure. If everything was stable, I could uh, roll out my five and 10 year plan for transformation. And it would, uh, I'm very confident in the plan. It would, <laughs> it would be transformative and, and it would uh, position the company to succeed in the long term. Uh, and I think that there is a lot of buy in. There was certainly a lot of buy in at Warner Media. We invested in this function very, very heavily. We invested in resources, we invested in headcount, we invested in the expertise to move this forward in a long-term proposition. But also, there are very short-term implications because the the workforce demands it day-to-day, and there's so much more power, I believe, in our workforce these days than ever before, right? You see the rise of employee activism. You see the walkouts. You see that employees are standing up and demanding a better work environment. They're demanding fairness. And that's very short term. And I think leaders and companies, even through a transformation, we know that. And we know that this is the great resignation. And we know that this is a very hot talent market. So how do you position your company? How do you, how do we position ourselves to win on all those fronts in the short term. And I think that is through an investment in equity and inclusion, Mm -hmm. because no matter, well, across all races, across all genders, across all identities, people want to be treated fairly. They want to be respected. They want to 
go to a, go to work and uh, believe they have a fair shot at succeeding and they want to be in an environment where they are positioned to succeed, where they have a sense of, you know, belonging so that they can really, really be bold and innovative without worrying about, you know, uh, hostilities based on their identity. Those are just very core human needs. I think they, I think the company that gets it right in the short term and in the long term will be the one that wins through any matter of transformation. I, I hope that we all, and I know you're doing a tremendous role in a highly visible role of, of having uh, safety and also doing the right thing, or also the elimination of fear of being perceived as doing um, something that we're just trying to help our friends, right? Mm-hmm. I, you said something about the safety in hiring the Harvard person, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, I am super conscious, and I know that many of my friends of color are, when we go to hire and we happen to hire the person who looks like us mm-hmm. because they're the best candidate, we also have to then take a few jokes mm-hmm. from our friends who say, why'd you hire that person? Just because they're, are you related to them? Or like, are you mm-hmm. trying to help out a friend? Mm-hmm. Whereas white folks who hire white folks never have to face that scrutiny because they're just going to say, well, they're the best person, right? Exactly. Or when they do hire somebody who looks like us and it's like, hey, we're always, you know, with, and especially when it is not legitimate, it's like, hey, were they a diversity hire? And it's like, well, that's so toxic to offensive mm-hmm. to persons you just hired, but also offensive to the culture that you operate to say like, hey, we don't want to hire the best. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is so complicated. And I think, you know, in 2022, with so many conversations that I think affect more broadly uh, the workforce population with return to office and mm-hmm. hybrid and family balance and all these things that we haven't had to address, but we've been forced to talk about because of COVID, how does inequity play or access or equality equity play in that conversation when we know, because data says so, that certain policies favor certain groups of people Mm -hmm. and that perhaps whether it is access to internet or further commuting distances based on socioeconomic groups that, you know, not just in any industry, but overall, how are we going to, you know, look at the future of work and future of, you know, equity and inclusion in the workplace um, as it relates to even our physical presence, um, as we have demonstrated in the last couple of years that we're fully capable of being remote and doing a good job. Um, We've run 99% of our recordings virtually and uh, we're doing okay. Um, And, you know, it's so, I think it's really fascinating to look forward also to think, How do we, you know, uh, the global or the more broad conversations about, you know, uh, physical hybrid solutions and the future of work, how do we fit into uh, what we would think of as traditional equity and inclusion categories into that? And so um, Mm -hmm. just, yeah, I... Yeah, Ooh, I, I wish are, we had. Yeah, you are asking some dense, <laughs> like really, really lots of uh, intricacies in your questions. Okay, so I think I'll start with uh, the notion that you were talking about that I, it has been labeled the diversity tax, right? That when you're a person of color speaking up for a person of color, or when you're a woman speaking up for a woman, right? People perceive that, or uh, you know, kind of. Uh, 
corporations or society views that as something that you're doing as a personal favor rather than for business, right? And so, yeah, labeling that a diversity tax and really naming it. Like we're at WarnerMedia all about naming it. Like let's not let it go unsaid. Like if we feel like there's a diversity tax going, let's name it and and mitigate that perception and, and that bias, right? And then we bring in the research. We bring in the research to show people, look, it is the case that when white men speak up for women or people of color, right, they are listened to. I mean, as much as that pains me, that is what the research shows. And so I actually think that that could be used as a very, you know, kind of empowering way to bring white men into the conversation to say, look, you know, there's a place for you to have this conversation. And this is where you should really lean into your ability to sponsor women, people of color, other underrepresented groups within the work environment, because you are in the dominant culture, you're in the dominant group. And research shows that you don't suffer a diversity tax. You don't suffer a diversity penalty. It's actually the opposite, right? They're actually um, lauded for speaking up on these issues. So fine, let's do that, right? Everybody should be speaking up about these issues because it is good for everybody. I think, right. you know, uh, rising tide lifts all boats, right? More innovation, more creativity in your environment from all corners is going to help everybody, so everybody should find their place and their voice. And if it is, you know, for me, myself as a woman, uh, as an Asian woman, I'll name the tax. I'm like, okay, this might be perceived as this, right? But I'm going to say it. <laughs> we, we need to talk about that issue. Or I mean, in a meeting where we're talking about something and, you know, someone says, oh, you know, uh, we're going to open the kimono. I was like, Okay. Do I want to be the person saying this? I'm like, and if I'm in a room where I can, I know. Oh, you know what? Lorraine's in that room. She's going to speak up for me on that one, or she's going to she'll raise it. Then I'm like, okay, then I don't have to. Then I'm just going to, you know, hold it for this other comment that is inevitably going to be needed, right? And so, yeah, you know, you really need to know that you have allies in the room. You really need to know that you're in an environment where, you know, everyone will speak up and name the thing so that it doesn't always fall to the one person to do it. Um, the I, I just remember early on, I was in this conversation and somebody was saying to me, you know, this was a, a, a white male writer who was hiring uh, for a writer's room, hired an Asian woman, hired a second Asian woman. And somebody said to him, what, do you have a fetish? So all these things come up in so many different ways. We need to be able to name it. We need to be able to call it and move forward, right? That's not funny. That's not right. And just keep keep naming it and keep this uh, narrative, you know, moving forward in a very positive, hey, you know, we're all trying to, we're all trying to do our best work. We're all trying to hire and open opportunities and tell stories, right? And just kind of make sure that we don't let those types of comments go. And we don't let that type of culture breed, especially in this industry of storytelling, where we need all stories and we need people to feel like they can come and tell their stories because the world needs to hear them. So I think that the idea of, you know, speaking up for people is, is so important. Um, Kenji Yoshino, uh, 
he is a lawyer uh, and a law professor at NYU, and he has done a lot of research about covering, right? And the idea that people would not associate with people of the same race because they didn't want to call attention to their race, right? So if I'm at work, I don't want to hang out with too many Asian people because, oh, maybe people are going to really realize I'm Asian. You know what I mean? And that is a, that's a real thing. And I think it was so helpful in his scholarship that he named it and he named the different types of covering so that we could say, okay, you know what? We're, we're going to push against that. We're going to see what this <clears throat> is. We're going to see that this is a real hindrance to ourselves individually to ourselves as a culture, to ourselves as a company, to ourselves as storytellers, and we're going to name it so that it doesn't happen. So I think that's really important. Um, I think with return to office, taking an, uh, an equity and inclusion lens to that decision, I think is really important because I think you just, you mentioned how those types of decisions will have very different impacts on different people having a conversation with our um, transgender uh, employees and they brought up, you know, just traveling to a workplace puts me at risk and puts me at jeopardy in a way that I've been able to avoid for two years working in my home. That's not for nothing. That is a very, very important, very tangible and real consideration that we need to take into account. Um, and that's one example. There, there are many. I think there have been um, lots of different pieces written, especially in the New York Times has done a good job covering these issues um, that really be, bring to the fore uh, some of the otherwise very nuanced um, uh, considerations when people are bringing uh, people back into the, to the office. So that, I know that's a very complicated issue, but I think you asked the right question. You know, what are what are the impacts of those decisions? What are the downstream consequences that uh, that we need to think about and that we, we think about on the front side and not, you know, after they play out, after the, the feeling of exclusion is experienced and then we have to rewind, right? There seems to be a long history of that. <laughs> and what we're trying to do is we're get, trying to get ahead of it. I, I think it is... Um... It full circle. So we, we started talking about how your lived experience informs the way that you uh, make decisions and, and to lead within the organization. And, you know, on these topics, especially as we come out of the pandemic and we've have uh, read about and even experienced ourselves, often the decisions that impact our day to day lives are made by people who don't experience our lives. And even in school, professors were making decisions saying, hey, what's the big deal? Just jump on a laptop mm -hmm. from their homes with home offices with great internet and some mm -hmm. students perhaps across the world did not have that or multi-generational homes where students didn't have sufficient Wi-Fi or multi, you know, multiple laptops or even space to learn. And so um, could not think of a better person with the experiences, both professional and personal and the, the right empathy and the right uh, purpose to to lead your team and uh it, it does impact what we consume what my kids you know consume um and then to know that uh there's somebody who knows what it means to be one of us um to to lead that and so uh as we wrap uh would love to and i know you've been an amazing uh avid listener of the show in preparation for this so shout out to you and, and the team <laughs> um because you'd be shocked at the people who want to come on the show who've never listened to one episode. What? But 
Um, we wrap the show in the same way that we do, uh, with a letter to our audience and perhaps to ourselves, to our children, however you identify or to uh, categorize the Asian American community. Uh, help us finish out the show uh, by sharing any insights, motivation, or inspiration uh, to our audience by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, uh, this is the time to step into our power. It might have been latent power. It might have been uh, quiet power. And in whatever form it takes, uh, we need to find our power and we need to continue to work to uplift one another. And uh, we will all, all across the world be better for it. Thank you so much for sharing um, your personal story, your your passion for the work that you do. Um, you know, I cringe a little bit now when people say representation matters. And I say, yes, but proper representation matters. Because yeah. as you mentioned uh, in, in the topic of um, the professor's, you know, research about covering, how many people have we gone to school with, have worked with, or even are personal friends with that don't want to have this conversation mm -hmm. because they don't want to be seen as, why does he always make it about race? Mm -hmm. Which I have felt. Or you're trying to rally the troops at work or at school for an APAM event or a student club about our you know, uh, culture and they say, hey, I'm busy. Mm -hmm. And in our minds, it's what could be more important than making other people feel like they can thrive at our levels. And yet there is, understandably so, because the world is so... Uh, awful in the way that they categorize you so quickly that they have social and political and even actual capital to lose when they are perceived by their peers as somebody who is no longer cool enough mm -hmm. to hang out with them. And so we, we know these people exist. And uh, my hope is that with conversations like this and with the work that you do both in and outside of the organization, uh, that we need everybody on board. Um, and for it's sure. not enough that we get all the Asian Americans on board to advocate for us. We need people allies uh we need people across the you know across the board um, as you said some voices carry more weight in boardrooms than others mm -hmm. and so if you have the privilege it is only right that we have to exercise it and um, again as we talked about at the top of the show uh, we come from families who only one generation ago could not imagine that we would have the privilege to use technology that didn't exist back then to talk about our identities and what we want to do with it so that our children don't have to talk about this stuff in the mm -hmm. same way that we are. And so um, proud of the work that you're doing. Uh, really excited to uh, get to know more about the work that you are doing uh, through the shows that you are working on, through the different endeavors, both in and outside of uh, Warner. And so, again, a big shout out to the Warner Media team behind the scenes uh, and, and for me specifically to Natalie at Allied for making this a reality. Um, it has been so cool. I, I am so excited that we talked and uh, we were joking before we started recording that we could probably spend the whole day talking to each other about this stuff. And so I hope that this conversation leaves you wanting more uh, and leads you to places where you can get more uh, nourishment on this topic, whether it is through different interviews uh, that Mikan has done or other things that so many of our community members are doing uh, in this very critical moment in our community's history to make sure that. We can talk about a lot of this stuff, uh, hopefully in the past tense soon. 
And so yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Um, I am so excited. We'll put this uh, links in the show notes to where you can find more about the work that Warner Media is doing in the equity plus inclusion space and also to connect with Mikan directly uh, if you want to engage with her. And so thank you so much for your time and wishing you the best health and happiness as we uh, move forward here together. Thank you so much, Jerry. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank Mike Hahn and the rest of the Warner Media team for making this interview possible. I uh, really had a great time listening uh, to her stories and um, so much to learn. And I believe that uh, for those of us who have an opportunity to shape and influence what many other people see, hear, and uh, consume, and how we do that, I think is really, really critical and important as we move forward to create a more um, inclusive, equitable, diverse, and just society. Uh, please do connect with MyCon if you uh, felt like you uh, were inspired by her. You can find her on LinkedIn. You can find her on Instagram, uh, MyCon Shelton, M-Y-K-H-A-N-H, Shelton, S-H-E-L-T-O-N. You can find the links in the show notes of where you can find her. You can also learn about all the great work that WarnerMedia is doing at the variety of uh, social sites that WarnerMedia um, shares their ideas through, and that is at WarnerMedia pretty much everywhere. Uh, if you resonated with what I said, and if it is your first time joining us here today, I encourage you to follow us at The Asian Americans, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a nice review if you enjoyed it. I can be personally found at JerryJ1 on Instagram or on LinkedIn, just search Jerry One. If you want to learn more about the work that I do outside of this podcast, you can find me at JerryOne.com. We've got another exciting series of uh, episodes coming to you. Uh, up next is our Mother's Day episode, so get ready for that on Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us. It means the world to me that you listen, whether it's been your first or your 143rd episode with us. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. As we always do on the show, wishing you health, happiness, and safety, and a really, really happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, everybody. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you for tuning into Dear Asian Americans.